hey, if you read my email last Monday, um, and hopefully, hopefully you're getting that, hopefully you're reading it, like I'm, I'm trying to put like a decent amount of thought and attention into these sort of uh, reflective emails and resourceful emails that I send out on Monday, and if you're not getting that and you have an email address, I hope you let me know. I'd love for you to make sure you get that. Uh, hopefully you caught where I said that I believe Amy's sermon last week was actually, in my mind, one of the most important that she or I have preached since we came here. And so now you're totally free to draw your own conclusions about the coincidence of all the disruptions that we experienced last week, the power outage and all the booming microphones and all that kind of stuff. But whatever the case may be, I really maintain that her sermon on what it means to be a deeply centered, Christ-centered church provides the most fundamental basis for the identity of local churches and certainly for how we understand our own ministry as pastors, Christ-centeredness. So I'm drawing our attention back to that because I think it's absolutely crucial as a backdrop for our text this morning and the next chapter that we're looking at in the good and beautiful community. This is the church as a reconciling community. We are still without the receiver on the back end, so I'll need you guys to help me uh, with the slides this morning. Thank you. The church as a reconciling community. I'll do my best to like, you know, this sort of thing. <laughs> so the connection here I'm trying to make is this, is that to be a Christ-centered church is to be a reconciling community. Because to depart from Christ is to abandon God's reconciling work. And to cease in our ministry of reconciliation is to cut ourselves off from Christ. Those two things go hand in hand. We walk away from Jesus, we are cutting ourselves off from the reconciling work that Jesus has wrought in the world. And if we cease in our ministry that we've been given of reconciliation, then we cut ourselves off from Christ. The text I want to focus on this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 20. And just for the sake of variety, and because I believe that some of this uh, accessible language helps to draw out some nuances, I want to read from the message version of the Bible this morning. So here's how that text reads from the message. Our firm decision is to work from this focused center. One man died for everyone, and that puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life, a resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. Because of this decision, We don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong, as you know, and we certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new life emerges. Look at it. All this comes from God who settled the relationship between us and him, and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. 
God has given us the task of telling everyone what he's doing. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. The word of the Lord. Amen. So the absolute, the heart of this passage comes in verses, in verse 17. And here's how we're used to hearing that verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Right? Hopefully that sounds familiar to you. We often hear that verse by itself and we assume that the point has to do with us as individuals. I am in Christ. I am a new creation. Glory, hallelujah. And of course, that's actually a true statement, but it's not actually faithful to the point that Paul's trying to make in this passage. And what is that point? It's that in Jesus, God has reconciled the whole world to himself, including you and I. And once we recognize and receive that God has done that, it fundamentally alters how we understand what it means to be alive and what our purpose in the world is. So I just want to walk through this passage this morning and see how Paul is unfolding it. So let's go back to the next slide is verses 14 and 15 again. This is the next one, thanks. Uh, again, our firm decision is to work from this focused center. Paul saying, one man died for everyone that puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death, so that everyone could also be included in his life, a resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. One more slide, guys. Oh, that's one. That one's fine. Thank you. So that, that gets right to the heart of the Christ-centeredness that I was trying to draw our attention to that I already mentioned. It's that Jesus changed everything. When God became one of us and took on himself the full weight of sin and its consequences, he did it for everyone. He did it for everyone. Now, hopefully we all have the benefit of having stories in our lives of being the recipient of people's generosity in one way, shape, or form, right? Maybe you were out somewhere sometime and somebody uh, unexpectedly bought you coffee or paid for your meal or somebody who's helped meet some real need in your life or someone who's come along the side of you when you needed a particular kind of support. Hopefully we all have stories about how we've received people's generosity in those ways. This is not that. What Paul is talking about in this passage isn't that. This is actually God, this is God acting unilaterally for the sake of his own world and all of those created in his image. So you can think about it like this. It's sort of like walking into a restaurant, right? And it's not so much that someone looks at you and says, I think I'm going to buy that nice person a meal. It's like walking into a restaurant and discovering that that restaurant has come under someone else's ownership and they said, everything is free. Everyone who walks in this restaurant eats for free. Or it's like moving into a house in a neighborhood. And this isn't your neighbor coming over and doing something nice for you. This is you moving into a house in a neighborhood and discovering uh, that some generous philanthropist has actually decided to pay all of the utilities for everyone who lives in that city forever. 
That would be nice, right? Like, it's just really important that we have that view of what's happening in this passage. This isn't Jesus or God looking at us and saying, I want to do something nice for you. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to act unilaterally on behalf of the whole world, that I want to bless everybody, including you and I. That's what it means by when Paul says, or in this rendition of the message version of the Bible, where it says, Jesus put everyone in the same boat. God simply decided, with no reference to any of our individual worthiness or need, but wholly out of his own love for his creation to forgive sins and to close the relational gap that sin creates. He just decided out of his own love he was going to do that. And why? In that passage we read, so that everyone could also be included in his life, a resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. And gang, this is just so crucial for us to see this morning, that what God does in and through Jesus isn't merely about us receiving a gift. It is that, but it's so much more. It's about us being invited into a qualitatively different kind of life. The idea here is basically the life you thought you were living, stop living it and live in light of the, in, in light of the reality of what God has done in Jesus to make something brand new possible, a different kind of life, the life of the resurrection. And what happens as a result? This is really key. So the next slide, please. Back to verses 16 and 17. Because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once, and we got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. <laughs> now we look inside. And what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new life emerges. Look at it. So Paul is going on to say here that the primary fruit of coming to know God in this way is that it fundamentally transforms how we see and engage with other people. Like that's the upshot of this. The very first thing, once we come to realize what God has done in Jesus, we begin to see and engage with other people in a completely new way. It's as we receive God's grace and learn what it is to live this resurrection life that we've been invited into that in a way we develop new eyes to see the world and to see people. I wonder if you can think of a time in your life when you've ever had what I would call a paradigm shifting experience. Paradigms, if that's not a word you're really used to, paradigms are simply models or frameworks by which we make sense of things, the lenses through which we look at the world. For a long time, people thought that the world was flat. And then through astronomy and exploration, we discovered the world is round. That's a paradigm shift. It completely changes the way in which we view the world. For a long time, people believed it was right and appropriate to hate your enemies. And then along comes Jesus and says and demonstrates not only that it's good, but it's possible to love your enemies. That is a paradigm shift for those of us who are in Christ. For a long time, I would have told you that broccoli is a vile weed that ought not to be inflicted on anyone. And just so you know, that paradigm is fully intact this morning. This is still how I understand the world and broccoli. 
Paradigm shifts are really hard. The longer we hold assumptions, the longer we hold strong opinions, the harder it is for us to let go of them or to have them altered in some way. But a paradigm shift in how we see people and therefore how we treat them, Paul would have us believe is fundamental to our encounter in Christ as our reconciler. There's a lot of ways that we could explore that, but the one that Jim Smith highlights in the chapter has to do specifically with forgiveness, how we think about and operate out of forgiveness in our lives because of Christ. And essentially, he wants to say that forgiveness toward people who have wronged or hurt us isn't something that we're meant to try to muster up on our own or even for our own sake. He's trying to make the point that it's meant to be an overflow of our experience of God's grace and forgiveness toward us. His concern, and I think it's a really important one, is that we don't understand forgiveness in legalistic terms, as though we must forgive others if we mean to be forgiven. His thinking is like that tit-for-tat kind of thinking is precisely the kind of paradigm that he's saying we're meant to leave behind. Once we understand that God has acted unilaterally to wipe the slate clean and make it possible for everyone and anyone to come to him, radically shifts how we understand these things. That's how Jesus has acted, and we're invited to act likewise. So you should ask, I would ask, how? (laughs) How in the world are we ever supposed to do that? And I think there's just two things that we have to, there's probably more, but at least two things that we have to hold in view here. The first is this. This is so crucial. The first is the idea that the enemy, the actual enemy, in all instances of hurt and pain and brokenness, is not an individual, but it is sin at work in the world. And as with God, we can only ever hope to extend reconciling forgiveness towards others if we grasp that we live in a fallen world. And because of that, receive the idea that hurt and pain and violence and brokenness are inevitabilities of this world that we live in, this fallen world that we live in. Those things are going to be a part of our human experience. We've probably heard this phrase before that hurt people hurt people, right? And none of us escapes the consequences of that reality brought on by sin at work in people's lives and in the world. And so the very first thing, I mean, the only way we could ever hope to become reconciling forgivers of other people is to understand when we're hurt, when we're wounded, when we're the recipient of violence and pain, that it's not first and foremost about that other person. It's first and foremost about sin at work in the world and that hurt people hurt people. The second thing I think we have to keep in view if we're going to kind of live into this reality is that reconciling forgiveness is never about simply dismissing the wrong things that people may have done, and it is absolutely never a license for people to continue to hurt you or other people. That's not what reconciling forgiveness is about. It is our decision to create the conditions for healing 
and for new possibilities to emerge. It is the vulnerability of love and it is the courage of compassion creating a space to do, for God to do a work that only God can do. You and I, the kind of forgiveness, reconciling forgiveness that Jesus has in mind that we would live into, you cannot do it. I can't do it. All we can do is be open to God creating a space and an opportunity to bring about healing and reconciliation. Here's how Jim Smith put it in this chapter. He says, we can only forgive when we know that we have been forgiven. When we're certain that we live in the strong and safe kingdom of God. All right, let's look at the last few verses of the section, and then I want to consider their relevance for us in the life of this community. These last couple verses. All this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him, and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the whole world square with him through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us, then, the task of telling everyone what he's doing. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. I just love this line. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. So to go back to where I started with the inseparability of Christ and reconciliation, I just want to note that Christ has not just given you and I the gift of reconciling us to God, like that is a real gift that he's given us. He has entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. This is the life that we've been invited into. We are Christ's representatives, Christ's ambassadors. We are those who are meant to put on display what Christ has made possible. The healing of not only people's relationship to God, but the creation of a new kind of community altogether, a people who, despite divisions and injuries between one another, discover the common ground of Christ's reconciling work for all of us and the promise of new creation. Like, this is, like, the overflow of the magnanimous gifts that Christ has given us. Not just that he's reconciled us, but that he said, I want to be at work in you as a reconciling force in the world. And so to be absolutely sure, that's meant to show up in our lives at a personal level. Intentionally examining our hearts to see if there are others, whether those be individuals or groups, that we feel a sense of broken relationship toward should absolutely be a regular spiritual discipline for us. Like, we have to be intentional about that. That brokenness might come because we feel hurt or wronged by someone else, or we might come to realize that someone else feels hurt or wronged by us. And in either case, unless we're regularly taking stock of where relational brokenness exists and then seeking to ask for or extend forgiveness, reconciliation becomes impossible unless we're doing that. And we begin to veer away from the Christ-centeredness that makes for a vital congregational life. This next slide, Amy shared this last week as part of her sermon, and I wanted to draw our attention back to it uh, to help make this point. So 
this is a fairly simple image and something like this could never address all the good conversations that need to be had about what it means to live as a Christ-centered community. But I just want you to consider this with me for a moment. This is one of these paradigm shifts that I talk about, a way of moving from a way of conceiving of what it means to be part of the church as an in-out reality versus like a moving toward or a moving away kind of reality. And I just want you to think for a second about how easy it would be in the first paradigm, the in-out thing, to lose sight of the importance of reconciliation. When we think of when we think of the church in terms of this static in or out, am I in or am I out? Versus a, a dynamic kind of like, am I moving towards Jesus or am I moving away from him? In that first paradigm, why would we do the hard work of reconciliation if I already consider myself in? Why would I do it? Reconciliation is hard work. And if I'm already in, what's the difference? But if we actually switch that paradigm and understand what it means to be members of Christ's body as this more dynamic reality of like at all times, I'm either moving towards Jesus or I'm moving away from him, then we know if I'm living into the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus has given me, then I'm moving towards Christ. I'm actively moving towards Christ and where he's to be found. So I hope you can just, I just use that as an illustration, but I hope you can see how significant that shift in how we conceive of Christian community is. It has been a paradigm shift in my own life. All right, so I want to conclude by making just one final point, and it's this, it's that reconciliation is costly. Anyone who tells you different has no idea what they're talking about. The work of reconciliation is costly. If it cost Jesus his life, it's going to cost you and I something to live into it. Reconciliation is costly because it deals with injury and injustice. When God reconciled the world to himself, he wasn't getting over his pettiness. God's not petty. He wasn't just up in heaven going, these darn people, and just being stubborn and stingy and petty. He was demonstrating his willingness to absorb into himself all of the injustice that harms the creation that he so deeply loves. Everything that fails to recognize his supremacy, his lordship over all things. God said, in Jesus, I will take it all into myself and usher forth forgiveness and reconciliation. And so it's absolutely vital that we not understand this ministry of reconciliation that we've been given merely as trying to be more nice or trying to be more civil. Those are fine things. Try to be nicer. <laughs> Try to be more civil. Don't confuse that for the ministry of reconciliation. What we're talking about here is far deeper than that. And I want to give you just a few examples to illustrate what I mean. All of us in the course of our lives um, will certainly have observed uh, marriages where a husband and wife begin to drift apart and everything in us may want to see them be reconciled we may want to see them stay together but we have to know that if the source of whatever the division is in that relationship is something like one party abusing the other that has to be dealt with if reconciliation is ever going to take place right the point isn't just keeping things together go along to get along never the point 
the point is God wants to create the conditions for flourishing relationship. And so reconciliation between, in a situation like that, is costly and hard. Or this, all of us hopefully want to see better relationships exist between black Christians and white Christians. We may want to see reconciliation happen in that way. But until the role of white Christianity in how it has brought harm and injustice upon our black brothers and sisters has been tended to, what we would ever manufacture is not the sort of reconciliation that Paul's talking about here. Just getting people in a room together, just making sure people can hug, just making sure people would never say mean things to one another, that's not what reconciliation entails. It entails contending with injustices that have been done, naming them, and asking for forgiveness. Or how about this? I mean, this, I think, is going to come close to home. It does for me. That in the course of friendships or family relationships, we often experience the exchange of emotional reactions to others. And we might trade remarks that are biting or are meant to wound another person. Or we may be recipients of those words. And too often we think that the simple passage of time or a perfunctory I'm sorry does the trick. And that is almost always false. That is almost always false. For actual reconciliation to occur, we have to give voice to what was done wrong and ask for forgiveness. This is why in the Roscoe house, try as we try really hard at this as parents when our kids are at odds with one another or heaven forbid, Amy and I and I are at odds with one another, not to let you think that ever happens, right? That like, it's never a matter of simply saying you're sorry. It's what do you need to ask for forgiveness for? What did you do that hurt someone? And ask for forgiveness for that thing. That is where actual restored relationship begins to take place. Because you've owned and identified the wrong that's been done. Because when we don't do that, without that, wounds just wind up living beneath the surface and they undermine the sort of relationships that God means us to have. Those wounds just exist there. Outside of what God might want to do to heal, heal them. So it's in that light, in that perspective that I want to offer us to respond in prayer this morning uh, like this. So if you could throw up that other slide. I said before that um, the enemy always is sin, never another person. It's always sin at work in people's lives and at work in the world that is the source of hurt and pain and violence and division. So what I would love for us to do this morning is just to name what are those sins that we are aware of? Maybe you've committed them. Maybe you feel like others have committed them to you. Maybe you just see them at work in the world and you watch them create division. What I would love to invite us into this morning is a way to just confess. What are those sins that we're aware of that are forces that cause division in relationships in the world? And ask God, help me to become an ambassador of your reconciliation and healing where those sins exist. It's a tall order. <laughs> like, it's actually really hard work. Um, but this is what Jesus has done for us, right? This is what God in Christ has done for us. He said, all of this sin, anything you could ever name, I've made a way for that to be pushed to the side so that you can be 
restored in relationship to me. And he said to you and I, you can be my ambassadors. I invite you to be my ambassadors of this same kind of reconciliation. So let me offer my own prayer and then let's pray in response together this morning. Father, I, um, I confess uh, that pride and arrogance are forces that cause division in relationships and in the world. I ask that you would help me to become an ambassador of your reconciliation and healing. Lord, in your mercy.